Well, good morning again. So happy to see you. And good morning to our uh, live stream body as well. We're looking at Romans this morning. We're returning to Romans after uh, being away for so very long. It was in the middle of March that we last spent time in Romans. That's not right, is it? It was actually in, uh, in April since we were last in Romans. Well, where we are now is Romans chapter 15, uh, verses 22 through uh, 33. Little theologians, I would like for you to draw a picture for me of what God wants you to do. What does God want you to do? Anything at all. Big stuff or small stuff, it really doesn't matter. Draw a picture of what God would want you to do, or does want you to do. In this passage, Paul is describing what he wants to do. But more than that, he's actually describing uh, what he's thinking about as he understands what God wants him to do. In many ways, Paul's making plans, but he's sharing with us by the Holy Spirit how he's making those plans, how he thinks about those plans. Well, that's what's happening in this scripture. So little theologians simply draw a picture of what God wants you to do. Before we look at Romans 15 together, would you please join me in prayer? And Father, we appeal to you that you would make yourself known to us in this scripture. That you would soften our hearts, that you'd push back our arrogance, that you would increase and fine-tune our listening. We pray, Father, that you would share with us about yourself and how you work in your people. As you've worked in Paul, you're working in us. Help us to know you, Father, through this passage, in Jesus' name, amen. The passage is in Romans 15, beginning at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Well, let me begin with the story of a funeral. In the first half of the 1700s, the missionary, David Brainerd, served in uh, New England, uh, New York, 
Pennsylvania, New Jersey in particular, to Native Americans there, preaching the gospel. And about 70 years after his death, by the way, one of the uh, oldest missionary organizations in America, mostly Reformed Presbyterians, actually established a mission here in our area to the Cherokee. They did this in the name of this very man, David Brainerd. And at David Brainerd's funeral, his friend and biographer, Jonathan Edwards, delivered a prayer in which he said, may this man's life excite in us all a due sense of the greatness of the work we have to do in the world. May this man's life, which has been extinguished, excite in us all a due sense of the greatness of the work we have to do in the world. David Brainerd died of tuberculosis at the age of 29, way too soon. And Edwards believed, though, that there was still gospel work to do in the world, and he hoped that Brainerd's life, and even Brainerd's death, would excite that work. Well, Paul's not writing this letter near the end of his own life, but he certainly believes that there's still gospel work to do. And I hope that you sense from the hearing of the scripture Paul's great motivation. Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to be excited So Paul's planning for more work to do, more gospel work, and we get to see how Paul goes about thinking about what comes next. We have an opportunity to uh, look into his planning. And what I think this passage is showing us is that uh, we can look at our own lives and see very ordinary circumstances. We tend to think of Paul as this uh, meteoric theologian and pastor, this great missionary, and he is. But we think that, by comparison, our lives are actually very ordinary. But what this passage is telling us is that, that our very ordinary circumstances actually become sanctified by the work of God in the life of the church. That our ordinary, by God's will, becomes God's own extraordinary. Let me tell you how this passage shows us this. The rationale for this entire passage is really Paul explaining why he has been hindered from visiting Rome. He's written 15 chapters, but he seems not to have answered the question, well, Paul, thank you for writing, but why haven't you visited us? And then here in chapter 15, he tells them why. And part of his answer is that he knows very well who he is as a minister. He knows what he's supposed to be doing. And Paul says what he's supposed to be doing. This is a part of his answer as to why he's been hindered. But another part of his answer is that while he knows what he's to be doing, he understands his purpose, another part of his answer is that he has to finish what he starts. And so there's something that he is supposed to be doing right now, something that he must finish. These are two reasons why he says, I've been hindered. I understand my purpose, but I also finish what I start, and I have to do that first. And then finally, in answer to the question, why, Paul, have you not visited us? Well, Paul shares that he knows who is ultimately in charge of his plans. God is in charge of his plans. 
And even as he says that God is in charge of his plans, there's still a little bit of a surprise as he says so, and we'll work our way to that. But first, let's begin with Paul knowing who he is, knowing his purpose, verses 22 through 25. At the very beginning of his rationale, Paul wants them to see that he has a very keen awareness of what he's called to do. He's called to preach where there are very few Christians. And this awareness is actually pretty important to Paul. It might seem merely technical to us. But look at how he describes why he's ready to leave Corinth in verse 23. Why would he ever leave Corinth so that he might actually make it to Rome? He says, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? He's, he's saying literally, there is no place for me here. Well, I think everyone here would actually disagree, wouldn't we? Now, Paul, there's so much work to be done in Corinth. You can stay. You're gifted. You can do so much. But Paul actually knows what his purpose is, although I suppose he wouldn't. He wouldn't doubt that critique. He can minister to Corinthians further, but he knows what his purpose is, and he stated it in the passage that's not in your bulletin. It's in Romans chapter 15, but it's a little bit above. It's in verse 20. Let me read this to you. Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Paul understands what his purpose is, and so, really, in one way, when they ask the question, why have you not come to visit us? Well, Paul can say that, well, I've been surrounded by non-believers, and I have a ministry specially for them. And when I'm not surrounded by these non-believers, well, then you can ask me that question again. You see, this is part of what keeps Paul away from them. He understands his purpose. And we can look all the way back to the first verse of Romans and we can see there that Paul understands himself as called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he knows his job description, so to speak. And we can understand this in a number of different ways. And one way we can understand it is Paul's called to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised, to Gentiles, while Peter, for instance, is called to preach the gospel to the circumcised. This is from Galatians chapter 2. But Paul's saying a little bit more here, I think. He's called to be with people who have not heard the gospel. This is how God has called him, set him apart. But it's also what Paul understands about himself as a minister, as a person united to Jesus. You see, Paul, he goes and he plants churches. He's called to be with people who don't have access to a church. He understands that about himself. Let me say something real quickly before going on. Uh, Paul understands that he is called in all of his life to serve the gospel. But there's something a little bit more specific about his service of the gospel that he understands. And that is to serve people who uh, are not believers. I think that's true for us today. That we're certainly called as Christians to serve the gospel. That's a non-negotiable. But part of Christian maturity is understanding in what way we serve God's gospel. I don't for a moment think that we understand this uh, uh, with uh, special clarity. We kind of have a sense or feeling about how we serve God uh, specifically. But we're called to serve the gospel, and over time we see where our strengths are and where our weaknesses are. 
A Puritan uh, of the name of uh, Ralph Venning wrote a book that was impactful to me many years ago. Learning in Christ's School is that book. And uh, in this book, he does something that, um, I don't know, perhaps I'm just ignorant, but I hadn't seen this before. Uh, he actually uh, divides classes of people in terms of their knowledge of Jesus. So he says, to be sure, there are non-believers and there are believers, but then he breaks down Christians. He says there are uh, Christians who uh, are very uh, childlike in their faith. He calls them babes or infants. But then there are Christians who are children and who are then young men and who are fathers. And all the while, what Venning is saying is he's saying that uh, Christians come in several different kinds, uh, certainly according to their spiritual maturity. You know, we tend to think of Paul as this Oxford academic, but he says that he's specifically called to reach the gospel to non-believers. And what do you think about this yourself, Ralph Venning's division? Can I ask you who you most connect with in your gospel ministry? Are they non-believers? Are they babes in Christ? Are they a little bit more mature, children, or a little bit more mature than that, young men? Or are they very mature? Fathers. I don't mind saying to you that for me, ever since my conversion, I have always yearned to help those who are very new to Christianity or very immature in their faith. And both Karen and I delight in this kind of ministry. Uh, in many ways, nothing is more gratifying to me in ministry than this, uh, helping those who are very young in their Christian walk. You know, knowing this is actually something that's important to Paul. And we wouldn't say that Paul is more spiritual than Peter, whose calling may be different. But it's obvious that Paul would long to go to Spain so that he might find more people there who are not believers. This is the flavor of the gospel work that Paul feels called to. He longs to go to Spain. We sense that in this passage. Twice he mentions Spain. It's very clear that he wants to go to Spain. But he also longs to go to Rome, doesn't he? It makes sense that he would want to go to Rome, or does it? In your mind, does it make more sense that he wants to go to Spain? There's non-believers in Spain. That's the very core of his gospel purpose. Why then does he want to go to Rome? But he longs to go to Rome. He says so in verse 23, using a word for longing that occurs nowhere else in the Bible. Rome is filled with believers. They've already been converted. In fact, Rome is filled with uh, likely not just one congregation, but a multitude of congregations. And not only this, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he's heard about their faith already because the faith of the Christians in Rome is the kind of faith that is trumpeted throughout all the world. He has this primary purpose, uh, Paul's call to be with non-believers. But he also has a drive and a desire to meet that purpose by going to Rome. And I think that that should sound a little bit strange to us. He has a primary purpose of going to unbelievers, but he has a secondary purpose, as it were, to be a part of the church body. He wants to be assisted by them. He wants to minister alongside them rather than work alone. And he wants to enjoy them and to be filled by the life of the church body, even though he hasn't met them. 
That's pretty remarkable. If Paul has a keen sense of his purpose to reach those who are not believers, but at the same time, he won't do so uh, without the church. There's a greater purpose after all. Well, Paul shares just a little bit about his plans and about his longing, actually uh, defining it for us, the kinds of people he's after. But Paul almost interrupts himself in verse 25 by sharing that this purpose has been interrupted by God's will. Paul has to finish what has already been started. He longs to go to Rome. He longs to go to Spain. But he can't right now. But whereas you and I might be frustrated in that, Paul doesn't seem to be frustrated at all. He knows who he is and what his purpose is. There's work to be done in the present, however. He's not some lone strategist who mulls over his plans. He's not an entrepreneur sitting down to write a very detail-oriented business plan. There's stuff that needs to be done right now. And God has occasioned these matters. He longs to go elsewhere. He longs to leave Corinth. But there's something that needs to be done in the present. Verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. It's important that we notice this as an interruption to Paul's plans. During his third mission, Paul was collecting relief for the poor in Jerusalem, specifically Jews who had become Christians who, on top of food shortages in Palestine, were receiving additional persecution from Romans and from Jews because of their Christian faith. It could be simply a ministry of poor relief. Paul is, after all, called to preach the gospel to non-believers. Why, then, does he seem to be embracing this, what looks like, a social cause? I think before we would uh, suspect that uh, Paul is simply responding to a social cause, Paul seems to describe this ministry to the saints in Jerusalem in a unique way. Look at verse 27. Paul says that the contributors were pleased to make their contribution. Pleased to make their contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. And Paul says they weren't really pleased, that there's some kind of gospel purpose in this gift. Remember Paul's purpose, to serve the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. But what is Paul doing here? He's going to those who have been named. All the while, we uh, think that our gospel purpose is something that's very, very significant because it's focused. But sometimes we're just responding to a current need. Paul's traveling with companions who've received cash. These contributions he's promised to send to those in Jerusalem. As much as Paul wants to go to Rome, as much as Paul wants to go to Spain, in fact, even knowing that God has called him to that purpose... I have to go to Jerusalem. There are believers there who need that which I've collected. (laughs) What a remarkable thing this would have been, by the way, just as a a gentle aside, for Christians in Jerusalem to uh, receive this gift, for Gentiles outside of Jerusalem to collect this gift. What a wonderful picture of church life that is. We're actually going to finish with life in the church at the end of the sermon, but we see it already here. 
the contribution that these uh, Gentiles in the far reaches of the world have uh, put together for the Jews in Jerusalem. It's really a remarkable thing. Verse 27 says that, there are gen- that these Gentiles owe something to the Jewish Christians and that there's a relationship between spiritual and material blessings. A Gentile uh, has to realize that their belief in the gospel is actually confirmation that the God of the covenant, the God who made a promise to Abraham, that that God's promise has actually come true because they themselves are Christian people outside of Jerusalem. The promise of Abraham, it's come true, and it's come true in me. It's almost as if the contribution is to say something to those Jewish Christians. And then the generosity of the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia uh, have this great message to Jewish, Jewish Christians that the promise has come true. But also the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in receiving this much needed financial help are also seeing and feeling and experiencing the promises come true. People I don't know love the Messiah and care for me because of the Messiah's love for me. I, that's just an amazing thing to ponder. But the important thing is this. You know, Paul doesn't see this work in the present as mere social do-goodism. It's a unique display of the gospel between Christians. You see what's happening, don't you? That Paul's very ordinary circumstances are becoming sanctified by the work of God. If Paul has this great plan to go elsewhere, but he can't do that right now. There's something else that he has to do. But even in that interruption, that's something else that he has to do. God is still using those ordinary circumstances for his own gospel purposes. Wow, there's a sense in which Paul, he just needs a pat on the back. Paul, I know you desire to continue your purpose by going to Spain. But Paul, you know that there's a job to do uh, right now. And what's begun has to be finished, even if it means uh, delaying this purpose. In fact, Paul, even if it means your death, because in Jerusalem, you're a wanted man. What I want to be striking to us is how natural all of this sounds. As Paul's describing his own life, his uh, longings and his purpose having been interrupted by the ordinary I want it to sound like your life as well. Do you ever think that your life is just far too uh, common, surrounded by nothing but the mundane and the ordinary? It just doesn't seem as spiritual as it should. And you may say, I never feel that. Well, what about when you're around people uh, who are believers and who seem to have an amazing spiritual purpose? And we all love to hear stories from missionaries and to meet with them. But which of us are actually honest enough to uh, admit that in quiet moments we wonder, why does my life seem so spiritually drab and theirs seems so exciting? (laughs) Look at Paul. He believes that he's called to minister to unbelievers, and it looks like it's the time to move. In fact, uh, he believes it is the time to move. He longs to move. But there's a practical matter in his way. He needs to finish that first, and then he'll gratify that longing. I think this should be very encouraging to all of us. It's so encouraging, in fact, look at verse 29. Here's an interruption to Paul's plans. I have to go to Jerusalem. I can't come to you immediately. 
Uh, he even says, I've longed to uh, visit Rome for years. He actually says that. And then here in Romans chapter 15, he's trying to describe why it is he's not been there. And he has to tell them, I, I long to be with you, but there's something that I have to do right now. And he says in verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He knows that's true. He knows that's true. Even as he turns his face the opposite direction because he's going to Jerusalem, even though he himself suspects that he will be killed. I know that, I will come to, that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Do you know when this happens? How's your New Testament history? Four years, no sooner. Four years. Well, Paul knows who holds his plans. Verses 30 through 33. What kind of a person can live like this? How is it that ordinary circumstances become sanctified for extraordinary purposes? When we see that our work is really God at work in us, and God at work in the life of the church, well, that's when we really understand that there is nothing ordinary about the circumstances of a Christian. You see, Paul's not motivated by strategy or wisdom or good intentions. Paul's motivated by God working in and through him. And incidentally, he sees this not alone. He sees this in relation to the church. This is very important. This is the surprise that I warned you about. I want to show you how Paul shows us that he understands very well not only that God holds his plans, but that God shares his plans in the life of the church. Paul's aware that God is at work through the ordinary circumstances of his life. Now, the phrase of verse 32 is actually very important. You see, Paul understands that he will do what he does by God's will. And I wonder if this is a phrase that uh, we have uh, forgotten how to use. Now, early in the church, there uh, are many instances of the phrase Deo Valenti, or simply D-V, being used as a signature in letters between Christians. Deo Valenti, D-V. If God wills. And Paul understands that uh, his gospel purpose through success, through failure, through smooth sailing, and through interruption, that, God, that the gospel uh, purpose of Paul, well, it depends upon the will of God. In fact, Paul seems to be so sure that God carries forward his gospel purposes in the ordinary circumstances of his life, that he actually invokes the name of the entire Trinity. Look what happens beginning in verse 32. God wills it, but Paul has not only the will of God, but he has Jesus Christ as his Lord, a lordship that Jesus earned at the cross. And Paul has not merely the Holy Spirit's presence. Notice what he says about the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit's love. For those of us who struggle understanding the Holy Spirit as a person, look at this. It's not love in the Spirit that Paul has. It's love of the Holy Spirit that Paul has. It's God's will. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it's the love of the Holy Spirit. 
that accompany the gospel purposes in Paul's life. And he knows that. He is aware that God is mightily at work through things that seem rather ordinary. The second is this. Paul not only is aware that God is at work, Paul refuses to pursue his gospel purposes without seeing himself as a member of the church body. Paul doesn't see himself as someone who's disembodied from the church. He doesn't merely hope for the prayers of the church. He desperately appeals to them to strive in prayer. And of course, he is striving in prayer as well. And he doesn't know them. He hasn't met most of them. He's never been to their worship services. But he appeals to them to strive in prayer for him. And they are to do this alongside him. Pray with me, even without knowing them. He knows that he's united to them. This is rather remarkable in an individualistic age in which we carry our individualism straight into the church. And Paul, he seems to ignore this reality that as a Christian, even as an apostle, as someone who is uniquely called on that way to Damascus, he refuses to to ignore the reality that just as he's united to Jesus Christ, so too is he united to the other followers of Christ. We so rapidly see our own life purposes as separated from others. My own purposes. And it's rather remarkable, don't you think, that we live in a world in which individual identity, wow, that's the new gospel. I I sense this, I feel this, I believe this about myself. No one else has to agree. This is who I am. That's the world we live in. And Paul refuses to live that way. He listens to his brothers and sisters. Our very ordinary circumstances become sanctified by the work of God in the life of the church. (laughs) You know, the life of the church and of the Christian faith, that's something that I wonder if we actually are very much aware of today as Christians. Should we, as Christians, be excited with the due sense of the greatness of the work that we have to do in the world? Should we? Well, I think we should. I think we should be greatly excited about gospel work in the world. I I am so disappointed in the long faces of so many Christians uh, who seem to have nothing more to say to one another than the fact that our country is becoming more liberal or more progressive or more culturally decrepit. I don't disagree. But do you think that America is very much different from first century Corinth or first century Ephesus? You know, maybe there's just more work to do. Maybe there's just more work to do. Maybe there's just more work to do. Well, we must pursue our work for the gospel because God himself wills it. He himself has sent Jesus, his only begotten one, that Jesus would die for the sins of his children and that Jesus would establish for himself and his namesake the church. And he fills that church through the Holy Spirit. And he's given each of us as members of that church a purpose in this life that trumps any other purpose. We are ambassadors of the gospel that has saved us. 
God has willed that much, wouldn't you agree? Why be excited then? Did you just hear me? God has willed that you would be a believer. And he was able to do this against all obstacles. Imagine what God has done that you might be saved. God has sent the righteous one, his very begotten son, to die for you. And over the course of world history, imagine the obstacles to a promise made to a Palest- in a Palestinian desert to a man named Abraham, who most in the world today never heard of, certainly in America. And even though that's the case, the church is here today. As powerless as she seems, as feeble as she seems, a religion birthed out of a part of the world whose geography we don't even know, and yet here we are. Trust me, the very ordinary circumstances of our lives become sanctified by the work of God in the life of the church. Deo Valenti, God wills it. Please pray with me. Our Father, you're with us. We are not alone. And we think and we plan, but you are guiding us. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that we serve not our mission, but your mission. To the glory of Jesus and the gospel, amen.